Welcome to the Astra Economic Week in Review. My name is John Eckstein and the Chief Investment Officer of Astra Investment Management. I am joined today by my friend and colleague, Nick Porter. Nick, hello. Hey, John. We are recording this on Friday the 10th, just after the CPI number. I was laid low by COVID last week, so we didn't get a payroll podcast in, but we will cover a little bit of that today, but we will focus on CPI and... Nick, why don't you go through the CPI numbers? Yeah, I think if you recall the last time we talked about inflation, you and I said that we might be seeing the peak in core inflation. And we were, well, so far we've been right with with one additional print. Core inflation, which obviously excludes food and energy, did go down to 6%. That's year over year from 6.2%. That was harder than expected. I think the average forecaster expected about 5.9%. However, a headline was very hot indeed. Year-in-year inflation was 8.6%. That's above March's 8.5% year over year. That's in fact a four-decade high. So we're back to sort of the Volvo era, or so I'm told by my more mature colleagues. Again, consensus there was for a decline. And so the story overall, I think, is really one of rotation into services away from goods, as well as energy prices and food prices. So services, if you know, 8.5 was a headline number, services contributed 3 percentage points to that, whereas goods contributed 1.7 percentage points to that. Food was 1.4 and energy was 2.45. And so as recently as March, good was 2.3 and services was 2.7. So I think you've really seen this rotation away from purely spending on durable goods and into things like airfare and hotels. And we've talked about that for a while and now it's really coming to fruition. But in my eyes, the, the driver, the divergence between core and headline is really, is really about energy. And of course, we can point the finger at things like the Ukraine crisis. So overall, I mean, I think it's it's a pretty tough number for the Fed to wrap their head around. The gains are pretty broad-based, and there isn't really much of a sign of near-term relief, particularly as things like housing, which is about a third of CPI, start to pick up steam. Yeah, the CPI, no, there's not a lot of good news in the CPI number, right? Like you can say that the year-over-year rate of change of core CPI has dropped two months in a row, and that's fine. Like the issue, though, is that so the month-on-month change in CPI is in core CPI is quite steady, right? It's actually as high as it's been in the last, you know, it, it was higher back in June 2021, but it's the highest since then. And it's been right around 60 basis points a month, several of the last months, not every month, but last month and then around the turn of the year. So the CPI growth, the current numbers are high and don't offer a lot of comfort. Now, if you look at the other ways of measuring year-on-year change in CPI, whether you look at core CPI, it did come down a bit, but then people do other ways of trying to get sort of like extract the trend growth rate in the numbers, like the Cleveland Fed has a, a core CPI, a trimmed mean CPI number, a median CPI number, and those are both going up, right? So like, there's no good news on, on the inflation front. And people have been talking for the last couple of weeks, last couple of months, certainly about, you know, we've seen the top in CPI and that's not the case. Yeah. That's yeah. I mean, during the, so the near-term post-pandemic era, all these, you know, central banks and ourselves came up with all these cute ways to measure quote unquote, real CPI after sort of discarding some of these pandemic related categories. And 
even yeah, if, you, if you follow those approaches, they're all still really quite hot. Yeah, they're, they're all quite hot. And the underlying issue is, you know, I think it's sort of underappreciated exactly how high household net worth is compared to pre-pandemic, right? So like household net worth peaked before the global financial crisis at about 500% of GDP and went down after the global financial crisis and has been grinding back up, back to about 500% of GDP over the course of 12 years to 2020. And then with all the support, like it rocketed up, right? So household net worth is now over 600% of GDP from a peak of 500. And if you look at just people's bank accounts, right? So you had a trillion dollars in checking deposits in the end of 2019, and you've got $4 trillion in checking deposits now, right? Like that's, that's a big, that's a big jump. That's a big jump, right? And, jump. and it's tricky when you've got the proximate cause of the high inflation is Ukraine, the problems with the energy market, the problems with the food markets, those both come, those are both exacerbated by Ukraine, but you're coming in this period where there's no room for error, right? Yeah, it has, it's been this sort of unfortunate confluence of issues. And you know, over the next 10 years, there's gonna be a lot of PhD theses about decomposing what exactly happened here. And I think you're right to point. Yeah, but no one knows what happened in the and, 70s. So like, we're not gonna know, we're not gonna know what happened here either. Right. Well, we'll think we'll know. But you're right to point the finger at Ukraine, but of course, recently, Treasury Secretary Yellen has also sort of admitted that some of that fiscal stimulus and support to households was perhaps less than desirable as far as inflation goes. And then, you know, we've been talking about supply chain issues for long enough, but those three things have Well, I mean, the, the stimulus taps have been shut, right? And they're not, there's nothing going on there. And in fact, state and local tax revenue is much higher than expected right now, right? That's a negative fiscal impulse. Right, but as far as household balance sheets go, I think right. What you were just saying, you know, yeah. that stimulus went quite some way. Right, right. Yeah, I think household wealth is extremely high. On the idea that you can see a top now, now-ish, income growth is moderating. It's probably below the rate of inflation, and the housing market is actually substantially weaker. Right, like it's the highest, the biggest increase in active listings in sort of like the history of, you know, you look at the last the number of active household listings, like that's going up a lot to a high level. The mortgage applications are going down. Price reductions, there's more price reductions. It's still at a low level of price reductions, but increasing fairly quickly. The anecdotal comments from home builder surveys are like things changed. And so like, this is of course, one of the big ways that the Fed is supposed to work is through the housing channel. And so it might take a while for that to really sink in, but it seems like that is going in the direction that the Fed would want and that they're the moderating housing. And, you know, we should mention, you did mention housing in the inflation report, like a lot of that comes in from owner equivalent rent, right? So the, not a direct measure of rent, but if you own a house, as part of that, you is an asset and part of that, you would have to pay somebody else if you, so you'd have a place to live and they, they try to estimate that. And that can have some funny facts. 
Yeah, absolutely. But it's also worth noting that, you know, typically it flags pretty substantially what's actually happening on the ground. I mean, I think so. there's more like built in there is your point, right? There's more like we've got some momentum with that that's going to keep increasing that owner equivalent rent in the CPI, right? That's already baked in the cake. Was that your point? Absolutely. You're right to suggest that housing, or at least housing price, home prices have moderated. I think where there is sort of good news in this report, it's that goods are contributing, you know, X food and energy are contributing less to CPI. But of course, the shift of services, it's really hard to see when that ends. Right. Because you were just saying, like, whatever, like, even if income growth is moderating, there's still this in the aggregate, a huge increase in wealth in this country and in balance sheets. And people are going to feel like they can spend that that money. But what, you know, I'm going to say it again, I say this practically every time we're on the podcast is that the, the consumer confidence numbers are, are cratering again, right? So we had Michigan numbers today. Those were what, basically record lows, way lower than expected. Inflation forecast is up. Current conditions is down. <laughs> Future expectations are down. Like, and it's lower than it was during the pandemic, which seems cuckoo bananas to me, right? It's like just historically bad. And it's clear that inflation is really the primary concern for consumers right now. Right. Right. And so we mentioned that one of the ways the Fed works is through the housing channel. So, right now, Coming into today, we thought 50 basis points in June next week. There's a Fed meeting next week, and then one in August uh, would be the one after that. So after the number today, the Fed Fund's futures market thinks that there's going to be a 75, a decent chance of 75 basis points next week. So let me ask you two things, Nick. So do you, one, if Biden finally wisened up and appointed you to the Fed, like what would you vote for? And what do you think is going to actually happen? I think I would, it's a pretty safe answer, but I think I would vote for a 50 bit hike. And I think the FOMC is going to do that as well. I think there is a possibility that we can see 75 basis points in July. I think the Fed will probably want to talk to that before they actually do it. And I think it's probably, you know, I, I, I think that the Fed is still kind of hoping, maybe misguidedly, but I feel similarly that some of these issues are going to shake out. But there's going to be some normalization in energy markets, there's going to be some normalization in food markets, and maybe a month doesn't get you there, but maybe it starts to show signs of getting there. And I think broadly speaking, 50 basis points is probably appropriate. Now, with that said, if things continue to heat up, I absolutely think 75 basis points is on the table for July. Yeah, like I would still be voting for 50 basis points. And, you know, it's interesting. So the Fed has a quiet period bookending its meeting. So uh, it would be super interesting to have, to see Fed comments today. Like, I wish there was some speech tomorrow that we could get some juicy comments on. Uh, the Fed definitely, I saw, like, the local presidents and the governors seeming more hawkish over the last couple of weeks. That was my take. And for, but for, you know, for inflation to keep going up, prices have to keep going up, right? It's like, we have to get another oil, you know, gas has to go from $5 to $7 a gallon, right? Like it can't just stay at $5, it stays at $5 a gallon and inflation stops. So for us to be still having 8% CPI a year from now, it's certainly possible, right? Like oil's at $115 and it could go higher, right? Like why not? But at some point you do get demand destruction and, and induced supply. 
And, you know, you do see, even with the greater restraint of the Permian Basin, for example, drillers, you do see them coming in, you see rig counts going up and supply going up in the, the energy markets, for example. So I think things will, I'm not sure how things go up, you know, another 10% year on year from, from here. Um, yeah. Yeah. I think, you know, the month over month annualized numbers will be pretty important, pretty important to watch versus the year over year. Right. And then, like, I, like we just said, like that shows no sign of any moderation, like right now. So I guess I was saying in our internal chat before, like we were talking about the idea of a 75 basis point hike, like to me, that's going to say to the bond market, the stock market, that the Fed's going to induce a recession to bring inflation under control. Uh, That'd be my interpretation of that. I do think the Fed has recently signaled that they've been patient as long as they can, and they can no longer afford to be patient. I don't think they're quite ready to bring this whole thing crashing down, but I do think that over the next couple of months, if we continue along the trajectory, they're going to act and they're going to act pretty aggressively. Yeah, I agree. So in a nutshell, I'm going to say, and, and you know, we didn't even talk about the payroll number though, right? But you know, we should mention that. That number was fairly strong. So we still see the labor market being totally solid and the big, the only real, real blight on the economy is inflation. And it's interesting how quickly that has come to dominate the entire conversation. I see the economy as doing well. You know, we, when we look at some more forward-looking data, a little bit more of the fuzzy data, that seems to be weakening. If you look at, for example, the PMIs, not as strong as they were, surveys of economists' expectations for this year, next year growth are all weakening. But the sort of solid data, like the payroll numbers, are still quite good. Do you have anything to add, any nuance to add to that, that sort of nutshell view of the economy? No, I think it's right. For me, the big question mark is, how does the economy respond to what might ultimately be a 2% of additional hikes in the coming year, maybe two and a half change in, in Fed funds rate? And what does that mean for inflation? And what does that mean for real growth? I think that's really the big question going forward. I guess I, guess I should say, you know, one before, before we drop off, I can say, you know, so my expectation has been basically the Fed would get to neutral and then see what they're doing. And I think that, that you have to throw that away, right? So the Fed has to get to restrictive on the Fed funds rate. So say the neutral Fed funds rate is someplace like two and a half, say. So I think funds have to go to three, three and a half before there's any talk of a pause. Yeah, I think that's probably right. And the two-year agrees with us, right? The two-year is now yielding 3%. And we could see another twos, tens inversion if we get another number like this. We certainly could, yeah. And other parts of the yield curve, not twos, tens, but other parts of the yield curve, in fact, inverted today. So... Very interested to see how that develops. Okay, we'll leave it there. If you are eager for more of our economic analysis, you can look at the Aster website, you can download the Aster Research app, or you can reach out to your Aster sales representative. Thanks, Nick. Thanks, Sean. To learn more about Aster Investment Management's research and strategies, please visit us on the web at www.asteriam.com or stay up to date by following us on LinkedIn, Twitter, and our app is also available on the App Store and Google Play. Thank you. Aster Investment Management, LLC, is a SEC-registered investment advisor. All information contained herein is for informational purposes only. This is not a solicitation to offer investment advice or services in any state where to do so would be unlawful.
Analysis and research are provided for informational purposes only, not for trading or investing purposes. All opinions expressed are as of the date of publication and subject to change, they are not intended as investment recommendations.